0: Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to talk about trends in an industry which is of interest to almost all of us, if not today, at some point in the future. It is the retail auto industry, whether that be cars, vans, or trucks. To help us do that, we have a recognized expert in that industry. He's Tyson Jomini. Tyson Jomini is Vice President of Data and Analytics for J.D. Power. Tyson has worked for J.D. Power and the Power Information Network since September 2009, advising auto manufacturers on pricing and incentives for new and used car sales. Prior to joining J.D. Power, Tyson worked for Ford Motor Company and Nissan North America, where he held several positions within finance and sales and marketing, leading projects in product development, manufacturing operations, pricing, and financial control hi tyson welcome to looking
1: forward thanks jeff i'm excited to be here for my first ever podcast
0: are you serious your first ever podcast that is fantastic i'm honored yeah, I've done
1: TV. I do, I do a lot of radio, but I've never done a podcast before. So I'll admit, I'm nervous, but
0: I'm excited. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we really appreciate that. People have heard my intro of you, and I'm sure they're as eager as I am to hear what you have to say about this very, very important industry. Which leads me to my first question, Tyson, which is you're in a fascinating industry. It's something that has thrilled many of us since we were kids. I remember... Uh, dating myself now, going back to the fins of the cars, the Plymouths and the Chevys and the Fords and all that stuff. Can you please share with us how you wound up at J.D. Power and a little bit more about what you do there? Was this all sort of a serendipitous thing or was this sort of in your career plan from when you were a little kid?
1: Yeah, it's actually a little bit of of both. And uh, again, I'm excited to be here. I, I love the name of the pod looking forward. I mean, especially like where we just were in 2020, you know? It's like, what, what do we all want to be doing right now? We want to be looking forward, so, uh, so it's fantastic. Um, you know, exactly. my family history, it goes back about 100 years in the auto industry. Uh, my great-grandfather actually was an engineer at, at Studebaker and General Motors. Oh, yeah. And um, you know, some, some people listening, mechanical engineers in, in the audience may, may even recognize my last name. Uh, my great-grandfather had a test named after him. He was a steel engineer. And it's called the Jominy Test. The it tests Test. the hardenability of steel. So we have a, a very long history in the industry. Um, and of course, my father, uh, you know, we, were, we lived in Detroit back then, my family. And so my father grew up in Detroit in the 50s and 60s, grew up with all the, the great muscle cars of the era. Um, and so he sort of imbued that car, the enthusiast on me. Um, and, and so when, when I came out of college, um, I, you know, I had a job offer from, from both Ford and General Motors. I was a, a finance major, so GM offered me accounts payable. It still doesn't sound very exciting, but Ford offered me product development. I was going to be working with cars, you know, working with future cars. And it was such an easy choice because I'm like, I'm going to be on Mustangs, and I'm going to be doing all kinds of cool things. And, and I, was, I was put on the dump truck, okay? And, uh, you know, after my initial disappointment, I found out it was just a fantastic place to work in and, and my first job to learn about the industry. So I, I've, I've worked at Ford. Uh, I worked at Nissan as well. And I was in the Nashville area. And I was actually working in, in consumer packaged goods at a dog food company, premium dog food, not just any kind of dog food, but <laughs> okay. the top shelf dog food. And uh, an old business school colleague who, who I uh, knew well, saw a posting on monster.com and said, Hey, this sounds like you auto industry data stuff. Um, and I, I took one look at it and said, yeah, I'm, I'm out of consumer packaged goods. I'm, I'm going to go to J.D. Power and, and get involved in the, the data side. So it found me. I wasn't looking. Um, and, and it brought me back to the auto industry, a, a place that I, I really love.
0: That leads to a, a quick question that demands a quick reply. <laughs> Is uh, How did you ever get from the auto industry into the dog food business? Why did you leave? <laughs> Well, it was the it was
1: right at the beginning of the Great Recession, and it was like, well, I, I had to get somewhere, and uh, they they were hiring. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, people will cut back on a lot of things during economic times, but to skimp on what they're giving their pets, no mm-hmm. chance. Pet industry tends to do well um, in, in in bad times, and so they were hiring and uh, just serendipitously, I I fell into the dog food industry.
0: (laughs) I think that's an interesting veering (laughs) off the highway, I think. Very good. Thanks for sharing that. Now, this normally would be a challenge for somebody, but not somebody not only of your expertise, but as we've come to learn here, it's in your family blood. And that is looking forward. And thank you for that little plug. I really like the name that we have here too. Looking forward is looking into the future. But we need to look backwards, too, to sort of set the stage for that. As we look back at the auto industry, can you speak to some of the big changes? And this goes back to your father, maybe even to your grandfather, but probably just your father's time. How has the auto industry changed both here and if you could speak to it elsewhere, pre-COVID, up to like March of last year? Traditionally, the auto industry
1: is a very slow-moving industry. Uh, the, the basis of, of what we do is is incremental improvements. And that, that certainly takes place on the manufacturing side where uh, automakers strive to take out just a little bit more efficiency out of every car produced and just continue to make things a little bit better. But that, of course, started with uh, with the Japanese manufacturing system arriving here, and the Toyota production system in particular, uh, really shook the auto industry to the core, and, and and that was sort of the the last big seismic change in the auto industry. Uh, you get companies like my own, like J.D. Power, that were out there saying that quality is is bad, but there was this belief that efficiency and quality were were not compatible. And the the Japanese manufacturing system that that came in when when Honda and Toyota entered the United States really showed that efficiency and quality are are correlated. They work together and and the more efficient you are, the better your vehicles will be. And it took the U.S. auto industry, uh, the domestic manufacturers and and even the Europeans a long time to come around to this and to get uh, more efficient themselves and improve their quality. And again, firms like J.D. Power played a a role in that by saying your your quality is not at the same rate as the Japanese firms. And so that was kind of the, the last real big seismic change um, but more recently, talking since the, the Great Recession, is that the industry has really uh, come into a lot of technology. And and, and probably some listeners are, are immediately going to EVs, and, and I'm not even going to go there yet. That's going to come later. Right, And, we, um, mean ele-
0: and ele- we mean electric vehicles, just for some of our people. Okay.
1: Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, electric vehicles, of course, is is what's really coming. Uh, and we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But for now, um, the auto industry for the last 10 years has incorporated what I would call the three three legs of, of technology have, have been on the the powertrain side, the safety side and, and the infotainment side of cars. Uh, so vehicles have become more or less rolling computers uh, with the amount of of processing power and the technologies that we brought in. And so what that really started with is you get a lot of safety tech. So things like technology that that keeps you in your lane, you know, keeps you from from going into another lane or automatically breaks. Uh, when the car in front of you has an emergency brake or tells you when a car's next to you. I mean, we've added a lot of safety tech to cars in the past decade. Um, and not only that, but of course we get the in- infotainment, the the Apple plays, all these screens and things. And maybe these two pieces have to go together. We've distracted ourselves so much that we have to add in all this safety tech to keep us in our lanes and not, not have us running into each other all the time. And so we, we've added these two pieces. But then the third one, I think really brokered in the, the new era we live in, which is the powertrain technology, the things we've added to the engines and transmissions of cars. We've made them so much more efficient over the past 10 years. We've added direct injection of engines, which uh, is, it, it feeds the, the fuel directly into the, the cylinder to combust. We've added turbocharging and supercharging. We've added transmissions with speeds uh, up to 10 speeds in a transmission. And all of these have produced very big powertrain efficiency gains. Now, as an industry, we should have been able to say, well, great, we've got this and and let's really advance the ball. But what happened was SUVs and trucks started to become really efficient. And that really changed the dynamic of the auto industry. No longer did, did consumers have to buy a compact car if they wanted to get 40 miles per gallon. They could achieve that in an SUV. And so consumers started to gravitate over toward SUVs and trucks because there's really no compromise in an SUV or, or you know, in some cases a truck. But you know, an SUV, uh, it gives you a lot more interior room. It gives you more cargo room. And if you can get close to 40 MPG in a compact SUV, why would you ever get a car? And consumers really caught on to that very quickly. And so for the past 10 years, uh, we've been seeing consumers move toward SUVs and trucks. Whereas as we exit 2020, those are 80% of the industry. It's wow. just a massive number. I mean, you think, you think about that old Dentine line, four out of five dentists recommend Dentine gum. Well, here it is. <laughs> four out of five consumers recommend trucks and SUVs for their neighbors. It's just a, it's a massive shift here. Um, from just a, in 2012, cars were 50% of the market today. They're 20.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and all this was enabled by these technology improvements that we've made here. And that, that to me is one of the big changes.
0: I want to just follow up on that with two things. One a comment and one a question. The comment is that I recall, and you probably know well, the name Deming. He was the man who was famous for going to Japan and coming back and saying, you guys got to focus more on quality. And there was so much resistance to that, as you alluded to. And I can remember growing up, there was no question we were going to get a Chevrolet. I mean, that was just the way it was going to be, right? The question is... The changes that you've talked about are very interesting. They tend to be geared toward, no pun intended, geared toward the manufacturing side. What about retail? For example, it used to be you went into a dealership and you bought a car. And I know we're going to get more into this with the post-COVID, but even before COVID, all of a sudden, weren't cars being sold differently?
1: Yeah, they were. And primarily from Tesla was was starting to sell them Sell cars directly to consumers, really with without a retail channel intervening in the way that we we understand it. That's certainly something I really want to get to later on, but that that was kind of the the one change. Most traditional automakers from Ford through you know Toyota and, and Mercedes have a dealer network and they sell their vehicles to the dealers. And then the dealers sell them to consumers. So it's, it's a third-party system where the manufacturer is removed from the direct sale to the customer. Tesla came in and figured out a way to actually do that directly to consumers. And it took a lot of legal work to get that done. An individual state, on a state-by-state basis, they had to go in and more or less fight their way in. But prior to that, uh, there, there weren't a lot of great retail changes in the U.S. auto industry for a number of years.
0: Okay. I asked you to speak, and you did very well, about some of the key changes that have occurred in the retail auto industry before March of 2020, which, of course, at least here in the United States, when COVID hit. So, to your mind, again, not only thinking here in the United States, but to the extent you could comment on elsewhere in the world, Tyson, what would you say so far has been the big impact that COVID has had on the retail auto industry.
1: Yeah. And, and you go back to March and, and that is really where it started. Matter of fact, I pinpoint it to March 11, uh, which is the, the day that Tom Hanks announced he had COVID. Um, and, and it, it seems innocuous, but you know, the, the guy was able to uh, find himself cast away on an island and, and survive by himself. And he couldn't, he couldn't stay away from COVID. And I think it really shook a lot of us because within 24 hours of Tom Hanks saying he had COVID and, and this went quick, the NBA postponed season, the NCAA basketball tournament was canceled. Disneyland closed its doors the next day. This all happened in 24 hours. Auto sales that day were only off 4%. By that weekend, they were off 38% Unbelievable. in five days.
0: In five Five days.
1: days. And the worst we ever got during the, the the Great Recession was a 36% decline. In five days, we went from pretty much spot on to the worst than we've ever seen. And in two weeks later, sales were off 80%. Unbelievable! Weekend. I mean, we were we were on the abyss, and and then things changed, and things changed, and we bounced back rapidly. And this is where the story really picks up: is what's going on, what changed? Well, we peered into the abyss, like Nietzsche said, but we didn't allow the abyss to appear into us. And what changed was we added incentives, big incentives, zero percent APR, you know, finance rate for eighty four months. How long is eighty four months? I don't even. I have to use my fingers. Seven years. Seven years. Seven
0: seven years. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then we said, "In six-month payment deferral, we'll give you seven and a half years to pay off your loan." Uh, that's going from one recession to the next. <laughs> so it, it got—that's uh, one way how we stepped away from the abyss. But then we had to learn to sell digitally. You take markets like Philadelphia, like you know Pittsburgh. Your whole state of, of Pennsylvania was shut down. There were no car sales for almost a month. The state of Michigan, Michigan, the home of the car no car sales for about a month. I mean, we're talking like zero. Um, And and, and places like San Francisco, though, did things a little bit differently because they were a little more advanced in in the regulation of how you could sell a car. Um, In San Francisco, you could do things completely digitally that you couldn't do in places like Pittsburgh, like Detroit. And what happened was in, in San Francisco, their sales still fell really bad but it never got worse than about 25% of their normal run rate. Therefore, 25% of the normal volume was being conducted purely digitally. Prior to COVID, that number was, was in the low single digits. About 5 hmm. to 8% of sales were done this way. Hmm. Now in COVID, we're up at a 3x in San Francisco alone. And you could see in markets like Pittsburgh, like Detroit, that, that were locked down to the same levels, but didn't have the regulations. Their sales went to zero. Um, nowadays, though, and this is the good news, is everyone now is invested in this, and all states have cleared the hurdles. So if we go down into more lockdowns, places like you know your your Philadelphia will not go to zero because now we can do things fully digitally. My lease was up in November. And even though I'm one of those crazy people that enjoy going to the car dealership, I said, I've been talking about this digital experience so much, I'm going to do it digitally fully. And I had to sign, I think, about seven things. So I, I wasn't 100% digital, but the, the dealership brought the car to my house, and we sat at my kitchen table, and I signed a few forms. whole thing took five minutes. It was fantastic.
0: Wow. Can you take a look outside of the U.S., Tyson, what extent J.D. Power looks at Canada looks at Mexico, looks at Europe and Asia to see what's going on over there. Are the buying patterns pretty much similar to ours or are they much different?
1: Canada is the closest to the US of of that group. So Canada has very similar retail network that we have to the US uh, and they they behave similarly. In the US sales last year for the full year were off 15%. Canada is slightly worse, I think it was 18% in Canada. Europe and and China went different ways. One, China got hit harder and and more immediate. So what we saw in March, China saw in January and February. We look at things on a yearly basis. And so they sort of had more time to recover in the year. So China's numbers looked pretty close to flat for the year. They managed to to more or less recover fully. Europe, on the other hand, had much more stringent lockdowns, certainly than the U.S., um, and it, it went on a little bit longer. We're talking Europe more in the uh, 18 to 20% off range. So not terribly worse, uh, but still worse overall than, than what we saw in the U.S. So those markets, though, they they locked down more. So therefore, they had more to recover, and they came back a little bit stronger than the U.S. did, even though we had a great end to the year in the U.S.
0: Okay, excellent. Just to follow up on that, you made an excellent point about how all the states are now equipped, including my own state of Pennsylvania, to handle these online car transactions. Is this similarly what's happening in Europe? You mentioned England, where they shut down. Is it happening in Canada, China? Is the online phenomenon in terms of buying cars something that's more global? Or is this bigger here than it is elsewhere? I think
1: it's running a little bit bigger here than than elsewhere, just due to the the different nature of uh, how vehicles are sold in other countries. You know, in Europe, very little is sold from inventory. Um, uh, most of the vehicle sales in Europe are are done on a, on an order basis. So it is a little bit more involved of a of a transaction process than we have in the U.S., where. Most of us are conditioned that we show up at a dealership lot and we, we pick the red one or the white one and we go home with a vehicle. In Europe, it takes a lot longer. So there's more interaction with the dealers, uh, a little bit harder to pull it off fully digitally. Um, but we're talking about a myriad of, of countries and regulations. So, you know, if I, I say one thing about France, it's going to be wrong about Germany um, and, and, and likewise. China is similar to the, to the U.S. system. Um, and, and how they they retail vehicles there as well, but we we are probably at the at the more forefront of it. And again, we we have Tesla in our home market, and they're you know advancing advancing the retail environment pretty rapidly.
0: Okay, that's really good information. Let me ask you something else. You and I had a chance to talk a little bit before we actually started the podcast, and you made an excellent point to me, which I really would like you to share with our audience, which is. The way that some other countries, I think, other places go about protecting the sales of cars that are manufactured out of their countries versus the U.S. And I think it's actually English speaking countries, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? I'd never thought about that before.
1: Yeah, yeah, one of the interesting things about uh, the way the auto industry has developed is, you know, I, I like to say most cultures like to have two two defining elements, a national beer and a national automobile industry. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, it seems like a lot of the countries in Europe, uh, particularly Germany, but elsewhere, you know, uh, protect their industries. Uh, the government is actually part owner in, in many of these uh, automobile companies and in, in other parts of the world, particular Japan, China, Korea, Germany, uh, but you don't see that as much in the English-speaking countries, and I'm not sure what the linkage there is. Other than they all speak English, but when you talk about the UK and its industry, um, it, it's it's so much less protected. It's not in the same shape as the rest of Europe, and that pulls over to the the United States and Canada, um, where. We're not as protective. And then finally, even Australia, which is not protecting its industry. In all these places, the car manufacturing industry seems to be something that the government is just content to let happen to it what happens, Uh, a laissez-faire approach to to that industry. Whereas in Germany and and Japan, you have governments that are invested in their automakers and have and will seek to protect those industries, even as this future comes toward us with electric vehicles and, and other alternative powertrains.
0: I think that's a great point. It seems as though in the United States, not going to speak for those other English speaking countries, that yes, the government tends to let the auto industry do its own thing. But when the auto industry and particularly manufacturers are on the verge of collapse, I'm thinking Chrysler here, we do as a government step in and, and try to bail them out. Something else I would like you to mention, because it relates to the impact of COVID on the way people are functioning in their jobs. And I think of you with J.D. Power. Before we got on the show, you said you used to travel about 50% of the time. Can you speak briefly to how that's changed because of COVID?
1: Yeah, and I, I was on the road about fifty percent of the time, as you mentioned, uh, prior to COVID, uh, working with clients uh, at their their locations. I, I haven't been on the road since Valentine's Day, twenty twenty. Um, so I, I've been home for nearly a year now, and so that that's just you know one anecdotal story. I mean, my the way my life has changed is I'm I'm at home much more. We're seeing that in, in car sales as well. Um, as a matter of fact, we're seeing uh, leasing is is off this year, and the kind of leasing that we are seeing is much shorter. Uh, The 10,000 mile a year lease is now the predominant form of leasing. It used to be 12,000 miles. Now consumers are saying, this looks permanent to me. I don't think I'm going to go back to five days a week in the office again. Uh, even Even if my company goes back, it may be reduced. And people are downgrading the kind of leases they're getting to match this new world.
0: That's fascinating. Something else that I realize now that we may have overlooked Can you briefly tell the listeners what you do on a day-to-day basis? We talked about your journey from pet food to J.D. Power, but in the dog food conversation, we forgot to talk about, what do you do?
1: (laughs) I was born and now I'm here. And, you know, what what have you guys been up to? Um, So I'm the, the vice president of data and analytics at J.D. Power. I basically analyze car sales and prices all day long it's a bit like the matrix. I I watch the numbers fly across the screen and I get really excited about numbers and cells. I don't get to drive cars as much as I want, but I I get to talk about cars all day long and why they sell and where and to who.
0: I'm glad that you explained that. One thing that I didn't ask you, we haven't talked about used cars. There have evolved new ways of buying used cars and and even new terminology. They're not used cars, they're pre-owned or whatever. Talk
1: about that, please. (laughs) That's right. Uh, used is such a harsh term. We like to say pre-owned now. This year is, is radically different uh, because of what we saw with, with these 0% offers. Uh, we really stoked demand very strong in, in 2020 and uh, in our recovery from the COVID period. It went so fast and, and, and sales picked up. Our plants couldn't keep up with what we're doing. As a Matter of fact, we have been down about a million units in inventory from where we were a year ago levels. Wow. We've been running at that rate inventory is very tight. So then follow the the thread through. Dealers need cars to sell. There's no new cars. So they went out and bought up all the used cars they could get their hands on. And used cars went gangbusters. You have used prices skyrocketing during summer. Um, They've come back down a bit. We've started to reach more of an equilibrium, but consumers really wanted those. And now you take Carvana, CarMax, companies that survive and, and need an inflow of used cars now having to compete with everybody for used cars. And they were really struggling to get cars, even though we've got this great new business model of more online used sales. It was so hard to keep that running, especially during summer, because there are no used cars out there.
0: I was going to mention CarSense, which is one in my area, but I never thought about them now having to compete against the regular dealerships. That's very interesting. Let's have you now look forward, as we like to do on Looking Forward, to what we might see in terms of the long-term impact of COVID on how we buy our cars or our SUVs our trucks whether we buy them in person or we're going to buy them online. Who, are, who do you think will be the winners? Who will be the losers? And it may not just be COVID that will affect that. What do you project, based on your knowledge, and you have a lot of it, what do you project we're going to see over the next few years, either as a result of COVID or maybe not, that will affect the retail auto industry?
1: And I think this is the part that your listeners really want to get to. Enough enough of this all other stuff. Let's get on to the future, you know, and let's, let's start talking Tesla uh, and, and electric vehicles. I mean, isn't that, that, that's what we really want to talk about. It's a fascinating, multidimensional, difficult question to answer. EVs, electric vehicles have always been the, the vehicle of the future. And it's always been just over the horizon. And it feels like right now, based on Twitter, based on uh, Tesla's stock price and, and, and what some of these Chinese uh, electric car companies are, are doing in the stock market, that the future is here and it's already changed overnight. And if, if you were sleeping in 2020, you missed it and everyone's buying electric cars now. It still is close. It's, it's not quite here. Maybe it's 21 uh, that we really see the change. What we saw in, in 2020 was that EVs, electric vehicle share of industry, was, was about Two percent, and you know EVs, and we we missed this anniversary. I missed it. Everyone missed it. A few weeks ago, the first you know traditional EV went on sale ten years ago in this country. The mm-hmm. Nissan Leaf just turned ten about two weeks ago. We all missed the the birthday party, <sighs> and so we've had a decade now of EV sales in this country. And they, there's a lot of tailwinds for EVs. You get, of course, the federal tax credit was there. State tax and local tax credits, you get preferred parking, free parking, free charging, everyone's favorite perk too, free carpool lane access if you're you know a single rider. Wow. We had a lot of perks for EVs, and it's taken 10 years, including the most anticipated vehicle of my lifetime, model three. I mean, hands down, no vehicle anyone has looked forward to as much as that. You add up all these facts, and EVs are at 2% of the market. And yet we all feel like they're going to go to something pretty high. You know, uh, Lauren McDonald said 100% by 2050, 30 years to make up 98% share. I I believe we'll get there. I I, I don't doubt that. But it feels like there still is a disconnect between what consumers are looking for and what the market values and what the stock prices reflect and and the way it feels like we're going. And so you take vehicles like plug-in hybrids. Uh, which I think would be a great solution for Americans. They they combine the best of both worlds. You get a, a battery, so you can go 25, 30 miles on, a, on an EV charge from your battery, and then you have a gas engine that can help get you, you know, to Vegas for the weekend. Americans are just confused by this technology. And I, I think it would be so perfect for our lifestyles, but it takes a lot of education. Um, and, and on the EV side. J.D. Power just put out a study about uh, electric vehicles, and our conclusion in there from what we heard from owners is that the charging network needs to expand rapidly and able to get us there. So that's the number one holdup for EV sales. But I think we need a lot of education, and that is so hard to convince Americans to do the right thing here. Just wearing a mask seems like a pretty sensible, scientific-backed way to combat the coronavirus, and we politicize that. How much more so Uh, Might we politicize the transition to electric vehicles? So I I think they're going to be the future. I think we've got a a great uh, runway there and there's a lot of new things and exciting things that are coming, but there's still some education and some infrastructure challenges that are not trivial in any
0: way. Well, let me ask you about two other things that I think could be affected by COVID or maybe not. At least one of these may affect the way cars are sold. One would be Will cars continue to be bought more online? That's a big trend. And I'd like you to address that. And then the other one is we're hearing now of the new administration seems to be talking about an emphasis on buying American and actually putting some policies into effect that might trigger more of that. Those are two potentially big things. Can you comment on those as well as we look forward over the next few years? Yeah, so first on the the
1: digital retailing side, uh, I said during the peak of coronavirus, about 25 to 30% of consumers in, in some markets were doing it that way. We now have the, the the process there. Dealers know how to do it. I think it's going to be a big story, a big development. Consumers are going to really like the experience. But so far, almost no one has has really experienced it. You had to have been in market in 2020 to have done it really. Um, and, and the average consumer owns their car for six years. So we are maybe you know not even one sixth of the way through the car buying population and experiencing something digitally. I think it's gonna to continue to, to gain steam and, and consumers that, that have bought this way from, from Tesla or CarMax or, or others that have a more direct to consumer buying approach will generally appreciate it. It's, it's not stressful. Um, again, you can do it on your kitchen table, you can do it from your couch. And it makes car buying so much easier, provided that consumers can get past the ability to kick the tires and and take a vehicle for a drive. Um, You know, there still are some challenges that, that need to be addressed with that business model. But I think that will gain traction.
0: And how about in terms of the Buy American? Is that that would be more, I think, having an impact on the manufacturing side? I know we've been trying to focus more on retail. Is there anything you'd want to say about that?
1: Yeah, so I certainly think the, the new administration this week mentioning a more buy american approach will benefit the industry, in particular transition to uh, alternative fuel vehicles, the electric vehicles, the plugins through this process. It'll force in in some cases consumers produ- or manufacturers producing elsewhere to bring things to the US. I do have hopes for the new administration in terms of the regulation around plug-in vehicles. Again, as mentioned, after 10 years, they've gotten to about 2%. Chelsea Sexton has this amazing quote about electric vehicles, I, I love it. And she says that the dirtiest your electric vehicle will ever be is the day you buy it. Because there's an <laughs> expectation that the electric electrical grid will get cleaner over time. But the cleanest your, your internal combustion engine will ever be is the day you buy it. And it only gets worse as its emissions degrade. So I think most people would agree with that kind of sentiment that we should be looking toward this type of world and we would want to have that kind of vehicle. We haven't had a coherent national strategy to get us there. And it feels like the new administration will at least start pointing the US toward that. We see that in Europe. As a matter of fact, in Europe right now, uh, sales of plugins are getting up to about 10% wow. of the market. Um, and, and now Europe is is trying to claim their number one, they're beating China, who was the previous uh, record holder. Europe is now very quickly getting there and they're doing it with regulation. Again, I think we we can agree that it's a good thing to have. Uh, more efficient vehicles that don't pollute like internal combustion engines do. Uh, And if we agree that that's a a good thing and consumers don't want to get there, our only other lever really is policy to get us there.
0: You had mentioned Lauren McDonald. He was a great guest on my podcast back in the summertime. He, of course, is an expert on electric vehicles. One thing that I want to ask you about that relates to my conversation with Lauren, but you haven't mentioned, and I think it's telling that you haven't mentioned this, is there was all this talk about self-driving vehicles. Where is that now?
1: Yeah, um, we expect those to be commercially available toward the end of this decade. There's a lot of, of work being done in the space. It felt like it was going to be here by now. I know there are some predictions we'd have a million self-driving cars on the road by last year. Uh, that were made several years ago. But we've all had sort of that, that moment, we realized there was a little too much optimism in the space. But we do expect it to come later in the decade. Um, and, and it's a very expensive technology. So much like electric vehicles, we would expect it to start at the high end of the market and slowly work its way down from there.
0: Okay, but you see that as still something that will come to pass.
1: Uh, I do, and you know, I'm I'm a firm believer in autonomous vehicles for most other people. Um, I've seen the way some other people drive and, hey, you know, let's, <laughs> let's get other people in uh, autonomous cars. But, uh, you know, all, all seriousness, um, you know, it, I, I do see it as something that that will work in urban environments, places where the taxi industry, the Uber industry is very strong today. I could see these kind of vehicles replacing uh, that industry where I am in Nashville, Tennessee, and I drive sometimes into the country and, and down into southern Tennessee. It feels a long way away from uh, autonomy and self-driving vehicles making its way down to to my world. But certainly in places like Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, I could see these being a a reality here in, in the next five to eight years, the second half of this decade, we probably would see that.
0: Okay, thanks. Before we get to letting our listeners know about how they can get in touch with you, Tyson, let's talk about opportunities And what I mean by this is many people have lost their jobs because of COVID. And some of them are in the auto industry. Many are still looking to find another job. Other people are saying, I wanna start a new career. You have young people who are students, which you and I once were trying to figure out, well, what do I do with my life? What should I major in? And then you have people like myself. I'm a second careerist at this point. Hey, is there any opportunity for me? Can you speak a little bit to where you see opportunities in terms of jobs, careers, maybe, I know you're not an expert on investing, but what might take off, so to speak, in this industry? Yeah, well, I,
1: I work in data, so I am naturally inclined to see opportunities and, and recommend careers in, in data. Um, and, you know, if you watched any NFL playoff games over the weekend, you know that data and analytics are influencing for everything from coaching decisions in, in the NFL, all the way through decisions that companies are making. Um, so anything in, in that space, as well as computer science. I mean, these vehicles are very much rolling computers. And so uh, having a degree in computer science and, and being able to code and or use data to, to market and sell and understand industries, I think is a, a fantastic skill that, that's going to be needed uh, in almost any industry. And, and it's something that, of course, I love because it's what I do. But I think we, there's a lot of places for people to make their mark in that that regard.
0: This reminds me of something that another one of my guests said. He echoed your sentiments. Mark Schulman, who was a polling expert and speaks about presidential polls and has done a lot of analytical work. And Mark was really touting data analytics in terms of survey research and polling. So that's a big area of growth that you see. How about from the standpoint of the dealerships? Are we going to see a decline in dealerships, less jobs for the car
1: salesperson? So I I would say in absolute, the, the numbers will probably come down. But uh, I would say overall, the franchise model, the dealership model will be with us. As a matter of fact, I would even argue that the quicker the industry transitions to this alternative future, the better it's going to be for uh, the existing automakers like your, your Fords and Chevys and Toyotas, because the, the auto industry is you know, in excess of 50 million new sales a year globally and the the number of new automakers that are out there do not have the capacity to meet that level of demand. So if the industry transitions very quickly, and again, as I mentioned, the auto industry is very slow to change, but the quicker it transitions, the more likely it is that the existing players are going to be able to hang on to what they have, um, which will mean that these jobs should be protected by the success of the automakers that support them. So I would say, but the kind of way we sell in the future is gonna change. It's gonna take a very digitally savvy individual to meet consumers online and be able to sell to them digitally. So the kind of buying is potentially going to change and and therefore the kind of person who would excel at a dealership sales job will change as a result.
0: Okay, very, very helpful. Tyson, this has been great. I really appreciate your sharing all this information with us. The only thing really left to do, which in some respects is the most important thing is for you to let our listeners know how can they find out more about you, what you're up to lately and how they can reach you.
1: Well, you probably would find me on Twitter. I am there quite a bit exchanging ideas and barbs with my friends on on car Twitter. I'm Tyson underscore Jomany. So first name underscore last name at Twitter. And as well as um, on LinkedIn, my my company JD Power does a, a pretty good job with our social postings there. So you'll see me there from time to time as well.
0: That is excellent. Again, I want to thank you very, very much for all this information. I hope that you continue to do very well in your career you've had a a great career and the leap from dog food to this i think is just wonderful (laughs) although i'm sure there are a lot of dogs aren't so happy about it but the rest of us i think are very happy so thank you very much tyson thank you jeff bye bye thanks for listening to this episode of looking forward i hope you've enjoyed it and learned something i also hope that you'll tell others about our show if you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's j e f f - o s t r o f dot com. This is Jeff Ostroff, inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.